0: Uh, we're in the middle of a series and this series is called gospel basics we're actually on the front end of it this is the third week and we're looking at three statements uh that 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 uh, about the the implications that the gospel the benefits that the gospel brings to us and so gospel basics is is meant to really help us in a season of disturbance through COVID and through just general unrest in our country to circle up around what it is that we prioritize, which is, number one, Jesus, his gospel. Number two, it's community, life on life with one another. And number three, it's mission, um, giving ourselves to the overarching, the grand purposes of God in the world to redeem and to draw a people to himself. So gospel basics is kind of putting all of those pieces together for us. These three benefits of the gospel, they come in three tenses, past, present, and future. And last week we looked at the past tense benefit of the gospel, which is we have been saved from the penalty of our sin through Jesus' life and death. And so this week we're going to look at the present tense, that we are being saved From the power of sin, through Jesus' resurrection and his enduring glorification. He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. And then next Sunday, we are going to look at the future tense implication or reality, benefit of the gospel to us. That we will be saved from the presence of sin entirely. And this is the reason, the cause for our hope. So, this morning, what I want to do is I want to just introduce three um, references in the scriptures for you. One will be from Isaiah chapter 55, another will be from Jeremiah chapter 17, and the third will be Jesus' words from Luke chapter 6. So, grab your own Bible, grab your app, grab one of the black Bibles in the room, and I want to read these scriptures um, to us to kind of frame out our time together, and then I'll try to unpack and illustrate how the gospel brings us power power today to help us overcome the power of our of sin against us and we can begin to choose Christ and choose to do righteousness out of a heart that loves God rather than out of a heart that is just looking out for number one so Isaiah chapter 55 verses 6 through nine. In the black Bibles around the room, it's on page 576. Don't be ashamed by any reason by any means to grab your table of contents and to to use it. This is written about 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 55:6. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah, "Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, or woman. Let him return to the Lord, let him turn, let him return to the Lord, that he, God, may have compassion on him. And to our God, for God will abundantly pardon. And then God says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, There's a great distance between the heavens and the earth. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so God says, Are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts? Now turn to Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, I believe verses 5 through 9. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking about the condition of the human heart. And he's going to use an illustration based on agriculture, trees, trees. Uh, to to begin and then he's gonna tell us kind of the basic meaning of this passage. Jeremiah says this, actually the Lord says this through him. You'll notice that in verse five, the first four words there. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man or in the strength of man, makes flesh his strength, whose heart, cursed is the man whose heart turns away from the Lord. This person is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. It's bleak. But then, Jeremiah says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Look at this, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes because its leaves will remain green. It's rooted fast in good soil, has nourishment there. Therefore, it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Then Jeremiah tells us that he's speaking, that God is speaking of the human heart and saying these things. He's saying, beware, the heart, what's inside of you, the collection of our desires and our motives, things that we love. The heart is deceitful above all things. So don't follow your heart. Be weary, be wary of your heart. It's deceitful, be on guard. The heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Jeremiah answers us or the Lord answers us through him. He says, I, the Lord, understand the heart. I search the heart. I test the mind. Now, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, uh, in his uh, in, in his teaching, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. You can find it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but a portion of it is also in Luke chapter uh, 6 here. This is a, uh, the greatest um, collection that we have of Jesus' actual teaching. Um, he is speaking about loving enemies and judging other people, but then he uh, turns here and he he, he kind of brings it together and he begins to teach on a tree and its fruit. And he says this, In Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. It's on page 810 in your Black Bibles. 810. Jesus says this to the crowds. For no good tree bears bad fruit. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by what? It's known by what it produces. It's known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes. Or, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. And then Jesus says, I'm talking about people actually here. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of a person's heart, our life is lived. We go after what we most want. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, would you open our minds and our hearts to hear what your spirit is saying to your church? Would we rehearse and remember and focus ourselves on the good news of Jesus? And would we learn to do so with increasing accuracy and increasing fervency? Would we come to you passionate rather than running away from you to cover our own shame? Thank you, Jesus, for covering our shame and our guilt, giving us reason to no longer cower in fear, but to hold you up as you are, reverent before you, to worship you. So instruct us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Horticulture is not exactly my specialty, but as I've been planting a garden and kind of experimenting with this, I'm learning something here that scripture affirms. If you want to increase the yield or you want to increase the quality of a plant or a tree or a crop, you have to do two things. Number one, and this is a consistent thing, you have to attend to this plant, you have to attend to the tree, and you have to assess its condition honestly. This is a process that happens over and over again. But if it is not producing at all or not producing what you want it to, you may have to dig up the root of this plant or tree and replant it entirely. Now, that's just a reality that comes with gardening. The principle here is if the root is faulty, then the fruit will be faulty. If the root is bad, the fruit will be bad. If you've ever put fruit in your mouth um, that is going bad, what do you do in that moment? It's kind of like a visceral reaction. You just you expel it right out of your mouth. Why? Because it tastes bad. It's not good. We spit it out. And in God's assessment of us and our condition before him, he has announced with total honesty, even more honest about us than we are about ourselves, how our root is bad and therefore the fruit of our lives. It's not pleasing to him. You can learn more about this through last week's teaching wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website. Uh, I expound on that quite a lot more. I would encourage you to do it. Uh, At the point of conversion, when we believe in Jesus, we trust that he, that Jesus Christ, the man who is God, has forgiven us of our sin, okay? He has um, forgiven us of the bad fruit of our lives, And in that moment, we are what the Bible calls regenerated. The Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see the reality and goodness of Jesus. He gives us faith to come to Him and to cling to Him, and we are regenerated. And so theologically, um, another term for this is born again. We are reborn. Theologically, this means that we are united to Christ and we are kept by Christ. He suffers in our place, he suffers for our sin, and he extends all of the righteousness that he has earned through his perfect life, he extends that to us. He credits it to us. He credits it to us. Um, Theologians call this the great exchange. It's an incredible reality. Uh, when Jesus said you must be born again to a teacher of the law, an Israelite, a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, this is what he meant by that. He said he, he, he meant that our condition before God as human beings, it's so corrupt that we actually needed to be uprooted and rerooted. We needed a new root. We needed rebirth. We needed, uh, we, we needed to be regenerated. And so contrary, maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says, I don't need to be born again, I was born right the first time. Um, Contrary to that bumper sticker, we weren't born right. We weren't born okay the first time. We were born sinners by nature, and then that nature begins to work itself out in our lives through our mouths, through our attitudes, through our emotions, through our hands, and through our way of life. About 10 years ago, I managed a tile and stone warehouse in Spokane, And uh, I remember a customer came into this warehouse and we were just talking about spirituality and faith. And he had some um, views that were different than mine and mine were different than his. And and I remember us talking about sin nature. And he was arguing, I had, uh, Gideon was real little at the time, he was like, two or something like that. Um, and this guy was, he was, he was, he was, um, he was really insisting that kids aren't born sinful, but rather they're sinful behavior. It's learned behavior. And we continued to talk and then it dawned on me, I should ask this guy if he has kids. And so I asked him if he had kids and he says, no, he doesn't have kids. So I like, okay. In that moment, basically in my mind, the conversation was, over because this guy did not have experience with little people. If you're a parent or you've been around little kids, 1-year-old, 2-year-old, these are some of the most violent thieving little people you can imagine. And and like our kids have said and done things and Meredith and I are like They didn't learn that from us. And not only did they not learn it from us, but we're confident they've never experienced that. It just bubbled up out of their lives, out of the overflow of the heart a child lives. And so scripture indicts us and it says that our hearts are bad. And so in this moment when we come to faith in Christ, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we're spiritual babies in this moment. And we're going to just make messes and we're just, it's our process of um, becoming more and more mature. It is a process. And this, um, this spiritual rebirth, it happens on the very front end of our salvation. And our rebirth is this full and final commitment from God to us that we are his. We are kids in the family. The theological language for this is justification. The judge has declared not guilty, and not only not guilty, but I'm going to extend to them my record of righteousness. And, and beyond that moment of salvation, when we become the family of God, the children of God, a process of becoming more and more mature then begins to uh, then, then, then um, goes underway, it becomes um, a process by which we live and it's the process of sanctification. This process of sanctification, um, it, it's the process of continual growth. It's up, It's down, um, and it's incredibly messy, uh, and and it costs a lot. It costs God the life of his son. It costs the people around us a lot of heartache, uh, just to name it minimally. But it also costs us. Uh, We're just stumbling forward. Uh, We've got growing to do in the Christian life. And the gospel is not only the power of God for our rebirth, but, but what we're hanging on this week is the, the gospel is the power of God for our daily growth. We don't just need it to get into the family. It is the way on for transformation from us. And the way that this growth comes is through a process that we live out. And this process of sanctification can kind of be boiled down in two movements. It's the process of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Now, my friend Steve, uh, he he kind of takes it further and uses some different language around this. And he calls it repentance and rejoicing. And I love this because a rejoicing, when our faith is aimed at Christ, it produces in us rejoicing for the way that he has lived for us fully and completely and perfectly. And so our faith in Christ causes us to rejoice even when things are hard and even when we're low. So I like this language of repentance and rejoicing, but repentance and faith is perfectly fine too. Uh, Timothy Keller, he writes about Martin Luther and how when Martin Luther opened the Reformation by nailing um, these 95 theses or points of debate to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, it wasn't this crazy act of rebellion. He was actually just looking for a debate with some fellow uh, Catholic uh, monks and scholars. Um, The very first line up for debate, the very first of these 95 theses said this, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Keller goes on to say, on the surface, this looks a little bit bleak. Uh, He seems to be saying that that Christians will never make much progress in the Christian life. But of course, that wasn't Luther's point at all. Keller says that, that what Luther was saying is that repentance is the way, it's the path for making progress in the Christian life. Indeed, all uh, of life repentance, it's pervasive. All of life repentance is the best sign that we're actually growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. It's important to consider how the gospel affects and transforms our act of repentance. In religion, that is, earning our way to God, The purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so that he'll bless you and continue to answer your prayers. And so, uh, Keller says, repentance is really about you. But in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly, get this, the purpose of gospel repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything that's contrary to God's heart. And so repentance is this tangible sign that sends power. It's actually losing its grip on us. Now, we probably need some clarity on this word repentance. For many of us, it comes with a negative connotation. Uh, We repent when we really screw up royally. Uh, and it, it's possible also that the Roman Catholic idea of penance is in our minds too. And that, that, that's what's kind of framing our thinking. When we mess up, what we need to do is feel really sorry about what we've done. We need to suffer. We need to even beat ourselves up a bit. Maybe we need to isolate ourselves from community. And we probably need to do some good in order to make up for the bad that we've done. And in a way, pay for our sin. That's worldly repentance. That's religious repentance. That's not gospel repentance. True repentance that honors God. It's not as much about us as it is about him and and the ways that we've hurt him and the ways that we have hurt people around us. Um, Gospel repentance, true repentance, it's about realizing and it's also about remembering. It's about realizing, like, I did that. It was me that said that. I did the thing that I most wanted to do in that moment. It was me. It's about realizing, but it's also about remembering the gospel. Lord, I did that. Forgive me. You're my only hope in this situation. Thank you, Jesus, for paying for my unrighteousness and for giving me your resume of total righteousness. I did it. Thank you. Uh, we're going to put an illustration up on the screen here. This illustration, it's a helpful tool that shows what, it's, what it looks like to grow through this process of repentance and also rejoicing. Uh, as, we real, as we remember the gospel, uh, uh, as we realize our sin, as we remember the gospel, two things are happening that are causing us to mature. We grow in awareness of our sinfulness and our flesh, and we also grow in our awareness of God's holiness. So here's what's happening on, that, uh, on, on the chart that you're seeing on the screen. Um, this horizontal line coming in from the left, it's, it represents our life, the timeline of our life. And then there's this point of conversion when we recognize there is a gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness or my flesh. And the thing that fills that gap is the cross of Jesus Christ. And as I continue on in my life, I continue to recognize uh, the scope of God's holiness and I grow in my awareness of my own flesh, my capacity to sin. Notice the ends of those arrows are ongoing and the gap continually widens as we grow in the Christian life. But what fills it? The cross of Jesus Christ stands in the middle and looms large. It bridges that gap. As we grow in our awareness of sin and in our awareness of the flesh, it actually shatters our notions that we're pretty good people and we're just like, we're in need of a, a minor tune-up. But rather, we understand that, um, I understand that my capacity to sin against God and others is tremendous. In fact, the longer I live, the more I realize how much help I need and my, my, I realize that my tree actually here, it needs to be pruned. And so the gospel the, the the message of God's reconciliation it's honest about our lack of righteousness and for us as we see these things it's not fun it's not a good time to see it and and so we have a strong tendency in us to want to avoid being honest about our own sinfulness, and so we'll tend to cover up our unrighteousness. Not necessarily with leaves like Adam and Eve did, but with sources of false righteousness that we employ to cover up our unrighteousness, like comparison, like judgment, like uh, ladder climbing um, in the workplace, like uh, relational cutoff, overworking, uh, other things. When we look to something other than Christ to bring us comfort and and, and to to do the work that the gospel is meant to do, um, to give us a sense of being enough, of being good enough, what we do is we actually minimize the depth of our sin and we also uh, minimize the magnitude of God's holiness. And so instead of getting honest about God's holiness and our unholiness, we have a strong tendency in us to kind of duck and cover up which actually leads us to more sin, not less. But the gospel, it, 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 it also comes with a, a backside to this message of our own sinfulness. It comes in to do renewal work. It comes in to encourage our honesty. It confronts our sin, but it also dismantles sin's power over us. And so our fear of God changes. Instead of this despairing sense that he will crush us when we do bad, we, we begin to move toward him in love and reverent awe. Our reverent fear, our awe, our respect, it's based on his goodness. It's not based on a suspicion that he is going to harm us. So many of us live under this fear, and the gospel works to actually dismantle That fear. The gospel is incredible news, and it's incredible news to be remembered and rehearsed on a daily basis because it shatters our suspicions that God won't have us, that God doesn't want us, that God um, is not to be trusted. And so it comforts us at the same time that it actually sets about going to its transforming work in us. It's kind of like the assurance of a doctor to her patient that everything is going to be okay, but she's got some work to do and it's going to require surgery. And so with her gentle hand and with her incredible skill, her reassuring skill, she sets about her work. She says, you know what, there's going to be some pain, but what it's actually going to do is it's going to lead to greater life. It's going to lead to greater health. The cross of Jesus Christ, as we see it looming large in that chart, it's central to our faith. The resurrection is central to our faith. These are two sides, the cross and the resurrection of one coin. Um, The cross teaches us that our sin is so bad that we needed a rescuer and a redeemer. Somebody had to die in order to pay our debt, a debt that we couldn't pay. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's also central to our faith because it assures us that this person who died, God himself, actually had the resume of perfect righteousness and obedience. And not only does he have the resume, but he's got the power to not only redeem us, but also to resurrect us. We too will defeat death by his power in us. Jesus defeated the power of sin. Through his life and through his death and he defeated the power of death through his resurrection. And now Jesus continues at the right hand of the seat of power, at the right hand of the Father. He continues to intercede for us because Jesus isn't dead. He's actually alive, never to die again, scripture says, and he is governing all things and he's working out his purposes in us. And so what that means for us at a practical level, not just at a theological level, is that God is inviting you and I. He's inviting us to grow in honesty about our condition about what's going on in our homes, about what's happening in our marriages, about what's happening in our friendships, about what's happening in our spending, about what's happening in our sexual lives, and our online searches, what's happening in all areas of our life. He is inviting us to honesty, not to hiding. He's inviting us to be honest about the ways that we, we, we fall short, the ways that we fail. The cross is incredibly honest about you and I, and so... We can be honest. Jesus invites me to rest in his righteousness. He invites you to rest in his righteousness, not my own or your own. And so I don't have to pretend that I am better than I actually am. I don't have to think to to look to things that I'm okay at in a general sense to provide a sense that I am doing okay. I don't have to look for my righteousness outside. Of Jesus Christ and so it frees me to wonder and to love seeing the holiness of God displayed on every page of Scripture because the notion that God will crush me it's actually displaced Jesus was crushed Jesus was condemned in my place my condemnation has fallen on another and it has been paid fully and finally by God himself, he is just, he is holy, and he has been incredibly merciful to me and to you, and his compassion, that is his ongoing presence in our lives, it's unfailing, it's not a well that will run dry, it will never run out on you, it won't. It's beautiful, and it's reassuring. And so as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness, and we grow in our awareness of our own sin and our own flesh, the cross of Christ, it can loom ever larger in our view. And what this does, as the cross looms larger, is it produces a deeper love in us for Jesus and a fuller understanding of God's goodness. And the result of that, what comes out of that is that our worship is magnified through the process of repentance and rejoicing. Repentance and faith. Repentance and rejoicing. But here's a problem that you probably recognize in yourself and that every single person experiences. um, There's this indwelling sin and I'm constantly doing things I don't want to be doing and not doing things that I do want to be doing. There's this massive capacity in me, not just for sin, but also just to forget the work of Jesus Christ, to not remember the cross. And so I'm regularly in my day-to-day life, this is a reality for me, I'm leapfrogging over the gospel. I'm just kind of pushing it down and behind me and I'm moving past it and I'm forgetting it. And so if we're not resting in the in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but but we are growing in our awareness of sin, so if we're not resting in Jesus's righteousness but are growing in our awareness of sin, what happens? We buckle under the weight. We buckle under the weight of these things. And what we do is we move to compensate. We begin pretending that we're better than we are. And so we grow in dishonesty. We're preaching to ourselves, I'm not really that bad. Not... We, 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 we judge, we compare other people. Uh, at least I'm not like them. Religious folks uh, tend to look to all the good that we've done. I, I attend on a regular basis, I'm here, uh, I serve, uh, I give a bunch of money, and so we tend to spend the truth in our favor. Those are all good things, but as forms of our own righteousness, they are completely insufficient. I think a lot of us just choose to blame others and to criticize people in our lives, even former churches, as a way of pretending it's them and not us. By all means, Churches are made up of imperfect people, and so they've done great harm, and I don't want to minimize that. There's probably some real serious repentance on, the, on behalf of churches for how you have been hurt, but as we pretend and as we functionally resist recognizing and rejoicing that the gospel is for all, every single one of our shortcomings, we actually minimize the gospel's power in our lives. If you notice, um, in the, it, 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 there's, there's a second um, illustration up on the screen. If you notice, um, if we minimize this cross, but we continue to grow in our awareness of God's holiness, there's this gap that is over the top of the cross and under that upper arrow. And so we perform there to gain God's favor or his approval or we pretend on the underside of that dotted line that we're better than we really are. And as that dash continues to go to the right and those lines go up into the right or down into the right, that gap, that mass in between the cross for us and our awareness of either our sin or our holiness, it continues to magnify and it continues to grow as well. And, and these are ways that we minimize the gospel's power in our lives. So when we shrink the cross, when that cross stays truncated there, the mass of our pretending, it continues to grow. Our performing, it continues to grow. And we'll arrive at these um, desperate, despairing, discouraged conclusions, like I tried Jesus, but he didn't work. I tried Christianity, but it didn't work. And so we eventually will stop engaging altogether or we'll engage in the motions because we've got some family we've got a general sense that it's what we should do but our hearts remain detached and our growth is stunted it's impeded and so discouragement overwhelms us and we just kind of go on as if things aren't going to change as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness that line going up and to the right it also challenges us It's really hard actually to come face to face with God's righteousness and his perfect character as you see it in scripture. We're just constantly um, recognizing uh, how much help we need. Um, And many of us, this might be you, you hate asking for help. And so gospel dependence is really hard because any kind of dependence or weakness is hard. And so you just don't want to ask help from people or from God. And so you just carry on and just kind of do it yourself rather than humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God serving you. We often feel condemned. and We hate that feeling. So we duck and we cover and we hide. If we're not rested, if we're not rooted in Christ's righteousness, if we're not rooted in his acceptance of us, we will compensate by trying to perform our way into good standing. And so what we'll do is we'll try to minimize God's holiness by reducing his standards in order to excuse ourselves. And we'll say things like, it's all about grace. Or we'll convince ourselves that whatever it is that we're watching or we're doing or how we're spending or how we're treating people around us, it's not really that big of a deal. You'll try to convince your spouse that the way you treated them or the things that you said to them is not really that big of a deal, but in reality, it is. And so, to counteract our sinful tendency, uh, to perform or to pretend what the gospel, what the good news of Jesus' reality and the fact that he is resurrected from the dead and he sits on the right hand of the Father in power, what he is doing in the moment with you right now and for every day evermore, he is inviting you, he is inviting me to courageously nourish our minds on biblical truth. We need not avoid our Bibles. We need more and more understanding of God's holy character. We need more understanding of our capacity to sin against God and one another. And we need more understanding of Jesus Christ's all-sufficient power in our lives because he's not dead, he's alive. He's ruling all things according to his power. And so Jesus Christ invites you to rejoice and to rest, literally to sit down on the work of his cross and and to and to rest your full weight on it on that cross and he's given us additionally he's given us his spirit and the spirit of god consistently and constantly draws us into dependence An assurance on Jesus Christ, that he has died in our place and lives and rules and reigns in our place and that he guards us and that he's given us all of the riches of his mercy. They are available to us to help us to continue this process of sanctification, this process of pruning in our lives that ultimately leads to greater and greater Christ-like character and that will will be consummated on the very last day in perfection, that we will, we will reign with Jesus Christ in glory. There is coming a day when Jesus will free us from the presence of sin altogether. And that's what we will talk about next week. It's this resting on the gospel today, this realizing of our sin, and this remembering the gospel that leads to fruitful, fruit-bearing lives. And so our application uh, isn't do a bunch of things. It's, it's our application here is to recognize that we have opportunity to draw on the reality of God today. We have the opportunity to become and to grow and to, be, to, to become more and more willing um, to be honest and to live honestly about our faults and our failures and our shortcomings. Church, I desire more and more and more, the more that God sanctifies me and works in my heart, that we would continue to live in honesty. I'm just not that awesome, and neither are you. But Christ has suffered in our place to cover our sins. And as we rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and learn how to do it more and more, become fluent in applying the gospel to the everyday realities of our lives, we experience more and more liberation and freedom. I pray that this word sinks into your heart deeply and that we're able to respond in communion this weekend. I love you, church, more than you know. Father, would you apply this truth to our hearts and would you help us